Mona Soul Conversations, a podcast where two Korean adoptees unpack what it means to be Asian and adopted by discussing culture, race, history, and sharing adoptee stories. I'm Shanae. And I'm Benny. And this week is our last episode for season one, and we're talking about mental health with fellow adoptee Kara DeLost. Welcome, Kara. Hey, hey. Happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, no pressure. You're our final guest for the season. How do you feel about that? Oh, gosh, no pressure. Um, I'm feeling good. I'm really excited to, to chat with you all. It's such an interesting time to be having so many conversations about so many things. And I think everybody's got that uh, post-2020 uh, courage about them, or we're all kind of in this like effort mode. So let's let's dive into mm-hmm. it today. <laughs> Yeah, we had a pre-call earlier this week, and a lot of the sentiments that you shared with us, I could relate with. So really glad you're able to join us today. Carrie, you're in the middle of moving, right, from Louisville to Seattle? Is that right? That's right. I am finally making my great migration. Uh, So I have been living in Louisville, Kentucky for the past 14 years, which I'm sure we'll get into how that has shaped my life experiences. And it was time for a move. And I will be one of those people that made a job change in the middle of COVID and lived to tell the tale. So I am moving out to Seattle by the end of this year to be joining the team at Starbucks headquarters. And I'm just super excited. It's definitely one of those surreal moments where it's something that I feel like I've been working toward for a really long time and it's finally here and I've been waiting to kind of bask in its glory, but you know, there's been so much going on. Um, I guess kind of hopping straight into the theme of the episode with like my mental health and just everything that happened last year. And it just had this onset of an identity crisis that I wasn't expecting. And it's, been very bittersweet because it has shown how powerful the state of your mind can be when it's like, you know, like I said, something I've really been looking forward to celebrating and basking in. And it just like, doesn't feel like I can because there's just so much going on and there's so many other things happening that stuff like a job and a career move and all these things, it just feels so like insignificant. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. Carrie, you said you've been in Louisville for the last 14 years, but where did you grow up? Yes. So remember how you said I was going to panic for this? So let's just get into it, right? <laughs> um, my jig, my, so I'm, I'm a Korean adoptee. That's why I'm here chatting with you lovely humans. was born in Korea and I'm, I was adopted around four months and I was adopted into a military family. So my dad served 22 years in the U.S. Navy And when they adopted my older sister, who was also a Korean adoptee, um, she, they were like, he was like stationed in Hawaii and they were like in Monterey. So she got like all these really cool places. And then like, I got Virginia. So I was like, thanks for that. Um, But I don't remember Virginia. I was only there for a year. And then we moved to central Pennsylvania. There's a small town called Mechanicsburg outside of Harrisburg, which is the capital of Pennsylvania. There's your, your trivia nugget for the podcast. And I lived there for about 10 years. And then he retired from the Navy there. And then his job took him to like Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky area. And then I moved 
to like middle school and high school and did that in Northern Kentucky. It's like, everyone says like, we're so annoying. Cause it's like, what does that mean? It's like, well, Northern Kentucky is like made up of all these little like cities that like you step two feet one way and you're in a different city, like Fort Mitchell, Fort Wright, Crescent Springs, Villa Hills, Florence. They're all like the same thing. So we just say Northern Kentucky. So did middle school and high school there and then came down to Louisville for college. And that's how I ended up there. And then I've just like stayed and now I'm not, thank God. I was curious to see how you were going to say Louisville because my husband is also from Louisville. (laughs) gets like really angry if somebody says like Louisville or Louisville. And I think one of the first presents that I got from my now mother-in-law was a t-shirt that had all the different pronunciations of Louisville. And out here in Colorado, not far from Benny and I is Louisville. It's spelled the same way, but it's pronounced Louisville. But I know he always like cringes depending upon how people say it. Yes, it's yeah. such it's such a thing and it's it's very ironic because you know I've been telling my life story so much lately, you know, being at a new job. So I'm like kind of like rehearsing that little spiel time and time again on these Zoom calls every day. But it's like I live in Louisville for 14 years and I never claim it and those are never like my things, like the Louisville thing and the bourbon thing. And those things only matter to me now that I don't live there. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like now that I've moved, it's the first time I'll say, Oh, I'm from Louisville. I was just going to ask if you are a bourbon or whiskey drinker. <laughs> I am a bourbon drinker now. Um, it is definitely a culture. I, I, I basically got like peer pressured slash shamed into it because the first couple of years living here when I was like, oh, I don't drink bourbon. I'm like, what? Like you would have thought I said like the worst thing. So I got kind of bullied into it for lack of a better term. <laughs> but now I enjoy it. Now I genuinely enjoy it. I know. Well, and the Derby's coming up. I know this this will air after the Derby, but we're recording this the Wednesday before the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. And they're, they're doing it, I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm watching my, the stuff that's happening. I guess they're just opening it at capacity and stuff, but get that COVID life. It's just, it's a strange time. And especially because it feels like we're coming out of it for some people, but it's like, we're not, we're in a very strange time right now. Also shout out to all the bartenders who had to make dozens of mint juleps on that day when they probably only done one in a year. <laughs> That's true. I feel like nobody drinks them outside of Kentucky and like Derby weekend. I agree. No, I mean, it's just a bunch of sugar down the bottom of the cup. I mean, don't like, I'm about to lose my Louisville card now. People are hissing at me, I'm sure. But it's just a bunch of sugar. I mean, that's why they're, nobody really wants to drink it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Daniel's joking Uh, about if the baby's born on Derby Day. He's like, we're going to have to change your name to name her after the horse that wins the Derby. I'm like, absolutely not. Those names are so terrible. It would be like essential quality Rothenberg or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Secretariat. You could name your your daughter Secretariat. Great. She's, you know, we just want her to get teased and have a horrible time in school growing up. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of which, Kara, you said you moved around a lot, and you also mentioned something interesting that I thought was something worth talking about. You don't really feel like you claim Louisville as your own. What was it like moving around as a kid and as an early adult, and now using this opportunity to move into a new state on your own? That's a great question. I think growing up, moving around, and you know, it was only once 
really in my in my first formative years. I would say it like shapes who I am, but I think what we'll come to find later as we have this discussion is that like, you know, my adoptee status shapes so much of who I am. And, you know, I won't go to the deep dive of it because I think it's been said so many times in our community of just, we never really feel like we are from anywhere. We can't really claim America. We can't really claim Korea. So it's always like this forever, like in between. So I think this idea of growing up in different places throughout the United States just felt kind of natural for me because I think innately down in me, I never really felt like I had roots anywhere. And that's something that now I'm actually really grateful for. I mean, I definitely have regrets, not really the word, but like, you know, we there's some people who've had like friends since like kindergarten, like preschool and or they have this really tight knit group of friends that they've had like since elementary school or whatever. Like, I just don't have that from moving around. And there are times, I guess, in my life where I felt like I envied that or was missing out on something, but it's always been in my nature, I think, to move around. And I don't know if that's like a nature or nurture thing. Right. And, or maybe it is just an early adoptee thing of just like, we were on the move. Like I always make the joke, like I've been flying since I was four months old. (laughs) My dad jokes always come out in like Southern accent. So funny. (laughs) Like that it's a joke, but it's, there's like something to be said about it. Right. Like we've been kind of on our own as humans at a very early age. So this idea of like detachment from any one place has always been like a part of who I am. I do think it fed into some of my challenges, having meaningful relationships. I think friendships were hard for me growing up. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm reading a lot more these days just about like adoption and the adoptee experience from more of like an academic or like a research lens. You know, I spent a lot of the first part of my journey just like getting to know people like this and having personal conversations. But then I realized I was missing some of the historical background, some of the political background, some of the more like psychological background on adoption and that whole side of it. So that's kind of where I've been geeking out recently <laughs> for the past year is just like getting to know the other sides of it. Oh, gosh, see, this is what I do. I go on these tangents and now I've totally lost where we were. Um, talking about uh, growing up in different places and how it's affected me. And yeah, it's made it very hard for me to have friendships when I was young because of some of those adoption triggers as well, just like abandonment and acceptance and blah, blah, that like heavy stuff we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. So it's been very crucial into the type of person I am today. And I'm also grateful for it in, in some ways because it has broadened my outlook on people and the world. And I genuinely think that if I hadn't had those experiences or even had my adoption story to tell, I wouldn't have half of those experiences uh, because it's almost like that journey like opened up gateways to communities and conversations I wouldn't have been able to have otherwise. Definitely. Kara, on our call earlier this week, you mentioned there are some things in your life that you identify with. One of them is your profession. Can you talk a little bit more about what shapes you and is your adoption in your Korean heritage part or a lot of who you are? So I I think this is how I opened uh, the pre-call. This is always a great icebreaker of, so I started therapy this year. Uh, (laughs) It's been a, it's been a great um, experience so far. It's a benefit that Starbucks offers and it's great. They gave like 20 free sessions to you and a significant other and your household. 
And, you know, therapy has been one of those things that I was never really against, but I just never, you know, went out of my way to seek it. And with basically the company taking all the barriers out, I was like, why not like check it out? This is how the whole thing started, right? So when I first started with my therapist, one of the first things, you know, you do is you, you tell your story, la la la. And like the first thing I told her was, you know, I'm adoptee and, you know, here are the ways that it affects me. And like, I've got all this figured out. I'm, I'm a really self-aware person. Oh, and by the way, like, I don't want these 20 sessions to be about my adoption. Yep. And yep. Um, every single time I've met with her, my adoption gets brought up. So I'm eating my own words. Um, I'm sure the professional on the other side of the camera was just like laughing, like, oh, she's one of those. Um, <laughs> she thinks she knows. This has like stirred up like so much um, healing. I'll, I'll use that word because that is a part of the adoptee. I'll take a small tangent and hopefully we'll get myself back on track. But it is a part of the adoptee experience, at least for me, I should say, is managing that part of my identity and that part of my story because there have been seasons and, and chapters of my life where I'm like, I'm good on that. Like, I don't need to talk about it. It's not bothering me. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think about it. And I can kind of ignore it. And it is almost like coming back to your like inbox after being on vacation. It's yeah. like you come back and you're like, oh shit, like there's all this stuff that like has been building up. And because I haven't been paying attention to it, like now I have to do all this catching up. So it felt like for the longest time, so now I'm going to get myself back on track, <laughs> answer the question. It felt like for the longest time, my Korean adoptee status was the core of my identity. And then I think as I got into, it started a little bit in college for me and then beyond, I switched my identity from this, you know, Korean adoptee. And candidly, at that age, it was more just like being an Asian kid in a white world. That felt like that was my narrative at the time. That's when I kind of switched into this go-getter, career-driven girl. I was a girl, you know, 20-something years old in college. And I just got like latched onto that. And I do think that my need to attach my identity to something tangible is it's again, a result of my adoption where it's like, I hold on to those things so dearly. Like I've always been like that as a kid, you know, like I loved Sailor Moon growing up and like all my stuff was Sailor Moon. Or like I loved the Backstreet Boys and I was like the number one Backstreet Boy fan. And that's how I would identify myself. That's how I would introduce myself. Like I, I always got like fixated on like an obsession for lack of a better term when I was a kid. So I think that has just been something that's been constant throughout my life. And it, probably is stemming from the idea of like, I've never had anything to really hold on to. So when something comes around, I just hang on to it for all its might. So once I got into my professional career, I really latched on to that identity. And, you know, in the past couple of years, I have been in the diversity and inclusion space, even before it was a sexy trend, let me tell you. I was one of those people talking about it before people really knew what it was because it affected me so deeply in those spaces. You know, I I had to navigate white professionalism as a young woman of color. And I started kind of in the digital space. So a lot of times I was the only woman, the only minority. And you hear people tell these stories and it's weird to even hear me like say it because I don't feel like I'm like some historical figure or anything. You know, it's not like that, but these things are real and and it's happening 
all over the place. And this, this awakening that's happening is also real. And it's somewhat surreal because for the longest time, I think we've been gaslit to believe that, you know, especially as adoptees and as people of color, that, you know, these things aren't real. We're being too sensitive. You're just making it up. And then to finally have this like huge sigh of relief in a lot of ways of no, these experiences are real. These things do have traumatic effects on people. There is research that shows that experiencing racism has the same stress levels and biological reactions as physical pain. I mean, there's all this research that's out there now, and it's affirming in a lot of ways to know that the pain that we have felt and the things that we've gone through were not just like made up in our head. So back on the question, it's going to be a wild ride with me, y'all. I hope your fans (laughs) are ready for this episode. Yeah. (laughs) My identity has shifted the focus from Korean adoptee to businesswoman. And I think right now it's like the calling is kind of back to my Korean adoptee baggage and identity. It's just like calling me right now. And it's funny because you know, I've been talking with my boyfriend and my friends and just like, man, like these conversations, like they, they take a lot out of me, but it's just like all I can talk about right now. So it's just like, instead of fighting it, I'm just like leaning in. So, you know, even chatting with you guys, it's very timely because I think I'm in a new space. If I were to look back on, you know, how I talked about my adoption two years ago, it's probably very different. And that's a pretty short amount of time to change your mind on something that big, but man, last year just messed me up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It messed me up. Yeah. Well, and I feel like the context has changed to your earlier point that in so many ways, especially in the last year or two, in a way, you know, the whole country has kind of gone through you know shit moment with its right. identity and everybody, you know, regardless of whether they're a person of color, whether they're white, everybody has been reckoning with, confronting things that maybe they thought were true that aren't true and just kind of figuring out who they are, where they stand in relation to other people. And Benny, we talked about this in our dating episode that for a lot of us, whenever we mentioned being an adoptee, like a, you can't really escape ever mentioning that you're an adoptee. Like if you meet someone new for some reason, just the way that it's constructed, like you have to say that, or you feel pressure to say that very early on. And the script that you prepare for those kinds of situations is so different than the stories I think that we're now telling now that there has been so much connection within the adoptee community. You know, how we talk to each other about our shared experiences is so different than how we would talk to the average Joe that we meet on the street and quickly feel like we need to explain why we don't look like our parents or why our last name sounds European, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That is so true. And it's funny that you say that. I did listen to that episode and just like laughed at the whole thing, by the way, just like so relatable, been there, done that, like everything you guys said. It's funny because, you know, Shanae, you mentioned like, when do you say it? And like, it's always a necessary part of the introduction at some point. I realized like coming into Starbucks, like first week, I'm like, I'm a Korean adoptee. Like, I'm coming out the gates. I don't even know these people. <laughs> wow. I haven't uh-huh. even, like, started. I, I've never met these people. I've never stepped foot. I don't even live in the same time zone as y'all. And, like, I'm just mm-hmm. showing up hot on the scene because it is so prevalent right now for me. Like, I, I'm one of the angry ones, by the way. That's another way I need to start introducing myself. Like, I'm not just a <laughs> Korean adoptee. I'm an angry one. Because um, yeah. I am. I am an angry one. I've always been an angry one. My sister and I 
laugh because she's not an angry one. And it's just like, we grew up in the same household, same parents, you know, sometimes it's just how you come out. And I came out angry and it's, it is important for me. And it's the biggest signal I could send to somebody to say, slow down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it could be a defense mechanism. You know, it could be like my vulnerability being like, I'm fragile right now. So I need you just to like back up. So I'm going to like drop a bomb on you. Like, I don't know if that's what I'm like subconsciously doing. Mm-hmm. But it, it's been like how I've introduced myself to the organization because A, I feel like I'm in a space where I can say that. You know, I'm saying this now, 11 weeks on the job. And like, they talk about how like Starbucks is like this fluffy feelings, touchy feely place. And like, it, it is like a hundred percent. And I do feel because I'm in a like touchy feely place, like I can come out the gate and I can say that. And it does make people, I think, react to me differently and treat me differently. And it makes me feel empowered, actually, because there were always times, and and I'm sure you all have experienced this, like at my old job where more often than not in a corporate setting, people aren't just going to like say something overtly like racist out loud. Usually that's not the situation, but sometimes just the sheer adoption piece, because it's hidden, will come up, right? So it's like, I'll I'll be sitting at the lunch table with a bunch of women and it'll be like, oh, I think I'm just going to adopt my next kid or, oh, I don't want to be pregnant. So like, I'm just going to adopt or like that person decided to adopt. I could never do that for myself. Like, I just want my own kid. I've heard all of those comments while working in corporate America. And it's just like, those things hurt bad to hear, like to hear women and especially to, I'm, I'm 32 now. And especially to be at the age where like parenthood is within my reality Mm -hmm. to hear it. It just like hurt, like my inner child, like hurt so much. Like the woman in me feels so like shocked. There's just like so, so many feelings. So it's Starbucks. It is so touchy feely. And I do feel like I can come out the gate and I can introduce myself like that. And it does send a signal. And I do, I want it to send a signal because I think I'm at that turning point in my adoptee status and my adoptee journey where like I'm I'm taking some of the power back because I'm so tired of feeling ashamed of it. The introduction was always filled with shame and embarrassment and oh shit, now now you're uncomfortable, I am uncomfortable. And yeah. you know, we learn to either make jokes or make light of it or tell our little scripted story, like you said, Shanae. And like I think I'm just like so done doing that that I don't want to say it's like a power move. But it kind of feels like that in my, in my head a little bit. I need people to understand that I navigate the world differently and language matters and my upbringing matters. And if you're going to have a healthy, productive interaction with me, there's certain things you need to know about me. And I'm just going to get the biggest one out there on the table now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We always talk about how it is always very heavy and oftentimes exhausting to continually to tell our story or interact with new people and, you know, basically start from square one on all the things that they ask us. And something that really spoke to me in our conversation earlier was using other things to help deflect having to talk about our core identity of being a Korean adoptee. And I think what I could relate to you, Kara, is using your career as something to mask that potentially because you're good at your job. You like showing achievement. It gives you an opportunity to relax and other things besides this deep thing inside of you. (laughs) That to me, when you said that, it's like, I can totally relate. We're both in business. We're both in marketing. 
I can definitely relate to using other elements to say, this is who I am now. I want to be a really hard worker. I want to be you know, the best marketer ever. But that partially is something for me, at least, to try to find some other identity that I've been trying to create for myself, whether that's going backpacking or doing overnight trips. It's something that I enjoy, but it almost feels like it has been a band-aid to mask the other things that I don't have energy to always talk about. Yeah, it it reminds me of something that I saw on Instagram and I've got to be better at like saving stuff, like quoting people directly. But like it it said something to the tune of with adoptees, there's just this never ending feeling of like trying. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone's trying, everyone's doing something, but there's something about being an adoptee where it's just like the trying feels more, the trying feels like it's never ending. And I hate to use this analogy, but it is so depictive of, of the experience of an adoptee. But they always talk about like there's like the hole, this void, right? Like there's this void in us. There's this void in our identity or in our heart. And you try to fill it with other things because it's missing a piece. And careers and what we do for a living and, and sometimes exercise and sometimes food, like there's there's plenty of drugs out there, kids. Like try them all. Like there, there's, <laughs> there's a lot out there to fill voids with. And I think for adoptees, because that void is so constant, it's like we'll latch on to anything. And for me, that is what happened. That's basically what my therapist has challenged me with this week is to think about what my identity is outside of my career. And of course, like, where do I land? I'm talking about being a green adoptee. Like, there's, there she is. She's, <laughs> she's been waiting for me. But that question has given me a lot to think about because, you know, I started to, uh, to unpack it a little bit on my own on the call and said, well, it's not really like my career that I think I'm attached to or like I identify with. Or if that is the case, I guess my question for myself is why? Like, why am I so attached to my career? And and I did this little exercise of like, well, it's because my career has brought me success and success has brought me acceptance. And then I was like, ooh, yes. like, there it is. Yes. Like, yep. Yep. It, yeah. it's really the acceptance that I'm chasing. It's really the acceptance is, is the drug that I'm seeking. And it can look like a lot of different things. And for me, it was my career. And I did, I had that moment again with my therapist of just like, well, I'll be damned. Like here I am once again, face to face with my adoption. It's like, no matter where I pull back the curtain, I I keep arriving at the same place. And I did, I had a moment of feeling almost like self-pity too, for a moment of just like, is this all I am? I had this, what I called my millennial meltdown. Uh, a while ago where I was sitting on my, you know, yellow couch with my like halfway designer things and my, you know, cute little shotgun house in Kentucky, like living the life, you know? And I I thought to myself, and I just had like tears streaming down my face. I just thought to myself, like, I have everything, right? Mm-hmm. I have the fancy schmancy job. I have the friends. I have the boyfriend. I'm financially independent, like all these like privileged things that I have. And I just feel hurt all the time. And I'm so tired of not enjoying my life. I'm so, I'm so tired of not being able to see how much people love me, even when it's so blatant right in front of my face. Like I just felt so sorry for myself. And I I genuinely felt like my inner, my inner wounded child, just like 
sitting there. Like I did, it was almost like an out of body experience and Oh my God, like, is this all I am? And I think I remember writing that in my journal was like, is this all I ever am? Is this all I'll ever be? Am I always just this wounded, abandoned child who was given up in Korea and shipped across the world to live like this seemingly perfect, but somewhat miserable life in America. And like, that's my melodrama autobiography right there. Since my millennial meltdown, it's really brought to the forefront. Just, I think I am finally acknowledging it, you know? And I think it's an ego thing for me of not wanting to accept it because again, it's like this self-pity thing. I don't know what it is. It's just like, I don't want to accept that the experience that the three of us and many others have been through is traumatizing. Right, And it does affect the way we have relationships and the way we navigate the world and the way we navigate within our own communities and the way we navigate in white communities and the way we navigate in dating relationships and everything that you guys talk about on your podcast. And I don't know why I refuse to like Mm self-validate. Well, and I feel like it's so hard because the things that you talk about, you know, those things of privilege, you said, you know, I have, I have the job, I have the house, I have the friends, I have all of the materialistic things. And I think so much of what needs to happen and is starting to happen is that reframing around adoption. I think you do it even when you, you know, walk into Starbucks before you know anybody and say, (laughs) I'm a Korean adoptee. Like in a way it's, you taking the power back and sort of sending out this warning signal to everybody about like, be careful how you talk about adoption because (laughs) I'm an adoptee. It reframes the idea that it's not the, I think, long told narrative of adoptees are so lucky because they're sent to another country to live a better life, to have those academic and financial and social opportunities that they wouldn't have assumingly had growing up in their home countries with their like poor parents. Right. Right. So, but people don't realize, I think like the true cost of adoption, you know, the fact that you can have all those things and you can be emotionally broken and miserable, like that those are not the important things in life. It's, it's your family and that bond and knowing who you are and that those are really the things it's almost more about loss than it is about gain. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. We also talked about, you talked about relationships and friendships. And what I thought was interesting is this notion of people pleasing, because I Mm. can feel, I can feel that as well. And what we talked about earlier in the week, this notion of there isn't always going to be a wide population of people in our lifetime that we can connect in a deeper level, in any meaningful level, whether that's your friends, your family, or a romantic relationship. So when someone comes along in your life and is a good friend or a romantic interest, there's always this idea of people pleasing because it's so hard to see that person leave or go. And that's built on the shoulders of feeling guilty and pressure to be relatable to that person or to feel more accessible or to be a certain way. And, you know, I can get that self-pity, but... Carrie, you and I definitely sound like the same personality. And I'm, you know, there's some days where I'm like, God, everything sucks, but I can't feel sorry for myself. I got to keep moving. I got to keep moving. Right. I got to, I got to work harder at my job. I got to do better at working on myself or working on my friendships, relationships. And other people are like, slow down. You're trying way too hard right. uh, at everything. And it's just like, you don't get it. 
you don't get it. Yeah, it's like um, survival so instinct I, for you. <laughs> it definitely is. But I, I, I don't know if you want to elaborate on that, but I definitely felt like that self-pity thing and the people-pleasing is something that also brings a lot of additional baggage too. Yeah, that's a great reminder, Benny. And it's so, it's so true. I, I'm much more effective at showing this one on video, but I, I think like the little hand gesture that I showed and that I said I feel all the time is it kind of feels like back to the derby thing, like you're on a horse a little bit. Like there's this pace that's kind of just like within me that's always pushing me forward in this rhythm. But it's like I'm tired and I and I don't want to keep going, but it's still pushing me forward. So the people pleasing, the job, the workaholism, the serial monogamy, whatever you want to if you want to insert in that, it wants to attach to that beat. And you just feel like you've got to keep always doing something, always pleasing somebody, always achieving. And it does sound like so dramatic, but so much of it, for me at least, is because I'm trying to validate my existence. Mm-hmm. And that sounds so heavy and it sounds like so early 90s, like garage band punk rock lyric, <laughs> but it, it's true. It's like, mm-hmm. there is the guilt that I don't think people talk about of being an adoptee. It, it feels really similar to like survivor guilt. You know, everybody's at least heard a story where they're either at a company and they like survive the layoffs or, you know, there's some also unfortunate situations where like people are either in war or in a car accident. Like there's always one person that makes it out and they live with this guilt of well, why wasn't it me or it should have been me. There's something relatable to that for me as an adoptee. And it feels like, well, you know, I kind of danced with the devil, I guess, or like I missed my fate of either not coming into this world or having this other life. And my story was totally changed at the drop of a hat. And I made it out and at least in my situation, feel like I'm 100% better than I would have been in the other situation. And there's this guilt. And then that guilt leads to when now you have to repay your debt. Yeah. And of of this bank that does not exist, of a loan that I never took out. Like it's all made up. It's all this like narrative in my head that says, now you have to go be the biggest, brightest, shiniest, most special star ever because you were so loved that you were shipped across the world and you have this beautiful life. And it it does, it feeds into that toxic, like adoptee narrative that I definitely was that person for a while. You know, I I don't know, you know, everybody, I think in our community now knows like the term of coming out of the fog. I think I said an episode on it, but I feel like I was out of the fog before I knew I was out of the fog type of thing. Mm -hmm. And it changes everything. I can relate to so much of what you say about being the overachiever and the guilt. And I don't know, maybe I just am assuming that many people have millennial meltdowns. Um, (laughs) I guess mine was like a late millennial meltdown, but I remember sitting in therapy and I was struggling with my job and not in the sense that I was underperforming, but just that I was miserable. Um, And my therapist, as therapists do, She was trying to help me work through, okay, this is how you feel. These are the circumstances. You know, what are your options for getting out of this situation that's making you miserable? What are steps you can take? What are the baby steps? And I was so paralyzed that I couldn't concede even just a little bit to let something go or to make a concession. And she said, you are so beholden to everyone and everything in your life. She said, you've, you're holding on so tightly 
and you feel like you have all of these plates spinning in the air and that you can't put anything down. And I was like, yes, (laughs) quite frankly. Like, I feel like if I do that, I'm going to fall apart. And she was like, but aren't you falling apart right now? And I wanted to be like, damn it. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) um, take that hard look in the mirror, right? Yeah. But it is. And I think it's hard to... A, work through that guilt and that beholden feeling and B, to also retrain your brain in a lot of ways to not feel like everything that you do and everything that you have is conditional. Mm -hmm. I totally relate to that. And that is where I was recently saying, I feel like my identity that I have built, especially around my career, has been for everyone else. Mm-hmm. And, and that feeds in, into the people pleasing as well. And and I have another Korean adoptee friend who's kind of going through that same thing right now, where it's like, you do have that pause moment where you say, how long have I been chasing these things? Or how long I've been, have I been acting this way? Or how long I've been holding those spinning plates? And like, who am I holding them for? Am I having fun anymore? And is this actually like serving my life? And that feels like that big pause moment that I'm in right now is even some of the narrative I have around my Korean adoption, it has been for other people and it has been to make everybody else feel happy or inspired or good after they hear my story. And I realized that that's not for me at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now I'm starting to even have the second guessing of what am I doing or what do I have that's actually for me? And it's pretty, again, dramatic to say and to think, but my gut reaction is not much. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. scary. It is. It's, it's a really horrifying thing, especially after decades, right? Like it's, this isn't just like, oh, I've been, you know, smoking cigs for a year. It's like, no, I've been creating personas and masks and templates and responses and jokes and defense mechanisms and personalities and all these things over decades of my human experience simply for survival, simply for acceptance, simply so I can maybe help fill that void, that damn void. Right. Like, when will that boy ever go away? And I do one of like one of the most emotional times I've ever really said something out loud about the void is that, you know, when I started my at least thoughts of finding my biological family, I said out loud, I said, I'm afraid that I could find them and I could get everything that I'm looking for. And that void is still going to be there. Mm-hmm. And The fear of that void being so permanent terrifies me so much where that was actually what kept me from doing my bio search for as long as I did, because I was like, I don't want to know because I'm actually more afraid to know that the pain that I have is forever because it's really easy to think, oh, the void is caused by me not knowing my biological family. If I find my biological family, the void will close. Sure. Makes logical sense. But I think everyone knows. And Shanae, you're reunited, correct? Sort of. I found my birth mother. We've exchanged one letter. But I actually haven't pursued it any further for a lot of the reasons that you're saying. That I think right now, 
I, you know, I'm like, okay, I found her. I have a picture. So at least I know that I look like her and that I do in fact look like a Korean, despite the fact that many people say I don't look Korean. Um, <laughs> I think you look Korean. And, but I haven't pushed for more communication or thought about visiting because in my mind, I'm like, okay, this isn't a good place. And I can close the book now comfortably before some other dark corner gets exposed or more trauma happens. You know, I I think for now, at least I'm content kind of just leaving it with she's found. And like you said, having that excuse of, well, I still might feel bad. I still might feel pity and have these things that I'm working through. But like, it's just because I haven't chosen to pursue that further. But it is, I think it's like a self-preservation thing. Do you feel like your void is any bigger or smaller? I don't think completely. I think there, in terms of becoming a mom, I think that void is, you know what? No, that's a total lie. I don't think that's, <laughs> I wouldn't say that it's gotten, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I guess I feel like it's maybe gotten shallower, but it's gotten wider, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, like it's just it changed. Like some things that were unresolved, I feel like I've gotten closure, but now there's, you know, a whole other host of crap that <laughs> that I'm like right. now dealing with. <laughs> yeah. Kira, when you were mentioning that you were holding off for a variety of reasons of finding your birth family, I anticipated what your reason was going to be. And I'm not surprised what you said because I feel the same way. Um, really? For sure. Yeah. I mean, wow. I could. it's how easy is it to, you know, get online and do some searching, you know, but I, I do feel the same way. It's like, I don't know what I'm going to find or what I'm not going to find. And regardless of either of those outcomes, there's a chance that I might not find closure. There's a chance that it might make me feel worse. Right. <clears throat> and sometimes I think of these super weird scenarios. Okay. Stick with me on this one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody seen Will Smith in I Am Legend? No. Yes. Ish, I think. A while okay. ago. Okay, so the premise is, I, I don't remember it, but I think something happened where everyone had to be quarantined and basically zombies took over the world, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And he believes that he's the only one that is still a human. And I often wonder myself, it's like, my goodness, I almost feel like that's what I prefer to live in, that kind of world I want to live in, because there's no pressure for me to be let down by friendships or relationships or other people. And oftentimes when you both talk about having plates in the air and you're juggling a lot to keep everything up and to please everyone, there's this notion of letting go, which is probably a good thing, right? But letting go also means there's this potential that you escape to no one or nothing and people forget about you or you don't have a legacy about yourself and you lose your friends or you lose relationships. And the problem is we don't live in that movie. People exist. And it's just, I think it's difficult for me to let go of those plates because I feel like if I do, then I'm going to lose out on the relationships I built or the people that I try to you know, work with to have acceptance and belonging. And I just realized how messed up that is that there's times in my head when I think to myself, I'd rather be alone in this own world because there's no pressure on that happening. And it's sad. And I hope someday that, uh, <laughs> speaking of therapy, it sounds like I'm the only one on this call that's not in therapy. 
maybe season we can, two. We is can something have a Benny new. bubble tea fun and a Benny therapy fun. <laughs> yes, let's do it. Drop the go yes. fund me. Oh my god, let's do it. <laughs> let's um, do it. <laughs> or you can go work for Starbucks. Yeah, oh, that is true. Over. Care, let me know if they're hiring. Maybe oh, I'll move up the. I'm always down to move. I'm I'm like a hey, rolling you're not stone. Far. A, a tumbleweed, yeah. <laughs> Call sure. it over. Let's do it. Join, <laughs> join the cult. I say it's like yeah. a cult. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and I could already can tell that we would get along because we we talked about having and craving this adoptee community, especially for all of us on this call, even more recently um, that we've been exploring that. <clears throat> but we also talked about how sometimes those gatherings or those calls or those meetups can also be a little bit loaded. Because it feels like the only thing we have to talk about or should talk about is our adoption story and our Korean heritage and how we feel so sad. And a lot of us are just like, can we just get past that and, and know that we, we're here because we all have the same experiences and that's good enough for us right now. Let's just talk about normal things. And uh, we, we had that conversation earlier and I felt like that was like, that's right on. Like I'm all for meeting other people who already know what our background is without explaining, but we don't have to talk about it. I don't know. Is that, yes. is, is that how everyone else feels at this point? Yeah. So I understand the need for both spaces, right? For CADs and, and other transracial adoptees. Like it's important to have yes. that safe space Sorry, where yeah. people can open up and, and talk about those experiences of being an adoptee. But being in a room full of other CADs, that's like the one space in the world where we actually don't have to say I'm adopted and don't have to <laughs> right. talk about it because everybody right. gets it. But I feel like that doesn't necessarily happen quite as often. But it's we like, still talk about guys, it. it's the one place where no one has to say anything about being adopted. And we can just talk about what we wish we could just talk about with everyone else without needing to preface it with I'm adopted. <laughs> and we still exactly. do it. Which right. goes back to my original theory of, is this all I ever am? <laughs> We've come full circle. We've come full circle of like, yeah, that is my grandiose question. Am I always going to be just my adoption? Mm -hmm. And it's a painful question because obviously it's so easy to be like, no, of course not. I'm all these other things. And sure, I could like rattle a bunch of things off, but maybe it's not what I'll always be, but will it always be the lens in which I experience things? Probably. Yeah. And it does, it shapes everything that we do. And that is what has led me to saying like, I think I'm just in this acceptance phase right now where I'm just like, yeah, I'm a CAD and it affects me in so many different ways. You basically can't talk to me about anything because I'm going to get upset. And I just need everyone to be nice to me right now. So if I had to like give my like short update on like how I'm doing on my adoption journey, that would probably be it. It would be like, I, hi, I'm Kara. I'm adopted. Be nice to me. Goodbye. <laughs> you should have, you should have a business card. You don't even have to say it. You can just hand someone a business card and it says those yes. words on it and that's it. Yeah. Yes. I'm curious in all of your, cause you said that you've kind of dug into some of the more academic literature and things on adoption. And I'm also just kind of starting that journey, but I'm curious listening to you talk. Have you come across anything that's like, 
like a 12 step program for coming out of the fog, like the different phases of, I haven't, I just feel like maybe somebody needs to get on that or do some formulation of something like that. Because you said that you're, I'm like in the acceptance phase and I'm thinking, well, what comes after the acceptance phase? (laughs) Like, (laughs) what do you need to do to move to the next category? Yeah, I actually, I haven't seen, I'm sure it's out there. I haven't, if not, like, all right, put put it in the GoFundMe, y'all. Like, go sell the ebook, <laughs> right? You can get it here on on Soul Conversations <laughs> for three ninety nine. The download, the twelve, <laughs> the twelve steps. There's your passive income. Um, I I have it, but I do think it's. I think you're right, though, that there probably is something that tangible about it because everyone I've talked to that's gone through it and has come out has basically gone through very similar stages. And I know that, you know, a lot of times people equate it to grief and like the grief cycle and like there is so much grieving in it, but there's all these other kind of funny things sprinkled throughout. And it's kind of, you know, a lot of what your podcast talks about, you know, there's like, I had my whitewashed phase and then I had my, I only date white people phase. And then I had my like super Korean phase where like (laughs) all I did was watch K dramas and like I, did my vocab every night. And like, it's funny just to hear people's funny is not really the word, but it's, it's just, it is relieving in some ways to be like, okay, so I'm not a psycho. Like everybody right. else like <laughs> had that moment and people still have those feelings, but it is such a unique experience. And I guess since I'm in a good mood today, I'll be like mushy gushy, not the cynical one, but It is as challenging as it can be. There are times and it could be just out of sheer necessity or misery. I don't know. I I have become so attached and so connected to that part of my story, my identity. Like I can't imagine my life not as a cad, you know, like Mm -hmm. if you could wave a magic wand right now and be like, okay, you could just like be like everyone else. So you could finally be like the white girl that you wanted to be. Would I do it? Hell no. You couldn't pay me enough money in the world to be anything else. And it's yeah. it's just weird to say that because like, even as a kid, like I have a like journal, it's just like so heartbreaking. I say it so lightly, but it's horrible. I have like journal entries of, of, as a young girl saying like, I wish I was white. That's mm-hmm. horrible. That is mm-hmm. like, that is, tra- that is trauma on a page. Like, I don't know what other like Harvard research paper you need that in and of itself is horrible. But if I had the choice, like I don't think I would change it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great sentiment to end on this season. I also share that same sentiment, Kara. You know, for all the trying times we have or all the stupid shit we try to do to fit in, (laughs) uh, there is a lot of, there's a lot of great things about being Korean and a transracial adoptee. And it's not all bad every day. And what you just pointed out totally speaks to me where it's like, there have been so many times in my young life and then even my 20s and recently where it's just like, I just wish I was white for one week or one month or one day. What would I do in one day? What would I do different? And then I keep on thinking about it. It's just like, what, what am I doing? Like, I don't think I could give up on myself. Like I'm, I'm 35. I haven't given this up on myself yet. There's no way that I would, given the opportunity to try this and be like, I'm throwing in the towel because I feel like we've gotten so far, at least in my progress of my acceptance and also celebration of who I am, where there are these pockets and notions of 
me actually loving myself and enjoying the presence that I built. And it's really good to hear other people say those same sentiments. Mm-hmm. You both said that there have been times where you have thought or felt, I wish I was white, not I wish I wasn't adopted. Mm-hmm. And right. I think that it's says insane. a lot. You know, I think that people can be angry about adoption and there's good and bad. But at the end of the day, I think just the fact that you two phrased it that way, there is still so much love for our families and for the love that we had growing up and at least the three of us. And it's not that we regret being adopted. There's meaning in that. Yeah, it's very profound. And, and it's true. It's true. Benny, I have just I have so enjoyed hearing you, you know, share your thoughts. Like I so much of what you say just it sits with me and it's so it's very poetic. You are very poetic. That is <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, we, I, I appreciate you coming on and Shanae too can voice that. But do we want to quickly say one thing we're surprised about or grateful for in this first season, especially related to our guests and what insight they bring to us? Yeah, sure. Do you want to go first? Uh, you go. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to copy your notes. I'm just going to copy. Hey, I'm letting go of things. I'm letting plates fall. So I'm not doing my own <laughs> I think this whole podcast, truthfully, I mean, when we started it, I don't want to speak for you, Benny, but I kind of went into it with the mindset of this is an experiment and we'll try it and we'll see what happens and we'll probably get like 10 listeners and then we'll decide that we will just throw in the towel. But it's become so quickly so much more than that. Even just the amount of emails or Instagram messages that we've gotten from people from adoptees to adoptive parents, just the outpouring of not only support, but people saying that they feel seen and that they feel understood. I think especially as someone who felt like for a lot of my life, I wasn't seen or heard to be in a position where we're making other people feel like they're visible, I think is it's been so incredibly humbling and heartwarming. It's what makes me excited to bring new guests on every week and to hear more stories and share more stories. And it's just so fascinating to listen to all of our guests and everything they bring to the table because there's so many different perspectives And I just think about the learning that even I've had listening to everybody. It's been incredible. So it's just been so much more than I thought that it was going to be when we went into this. So I'm really excited that it's gone this way. And I'm super excited for season two to see what else comes about. 100% 100% agree on all fronts. You know, when you, when you, when you mentioned like, uh, like, well, <laughs> uh, I, I mean it though, like when, Sinead, when you're saying like, <laughs> we're going to start this podcast and we might get 10 listeners and we'll just throw in the towel because it's, it's a lot to do. And I think I went into this podcast creation thinking of this individual that I talked about in, I think, episode one or two where I learned that this individual was going through therapy during a very transformative year in this person's life. And that confirmed that this person was having a very hard and difficult time with their adoption, their identity. And I said to myself, you know, if if we can help just that one person, to me, that makes it all worthwhile. And the response has been overwhelming. You mentioned all the texts, all the emails, all the Instagram messages, I've gotten so many today too that just saying like, 
I love listening to your episode. It's the first thing I do when I get home from work and I can't stop talking about just my husband. And there's so many things I'm learning. It's great that we can use our voice to bring space and community to other people who want to learn and people who feel similar to us that can feel like they have a belonging and community. And that's also thanks to our guests too, who also bring some really great perspective and some really great knowledge. And you two have been my therapy session tonight. It's it's funny though because uh, <laughs> uh, back, back back in the day though, like I grew up in a small town. All listeners have to understand, like I grew up in a small town, very religious area. Like people didn't believe in suing each other or lawyers because you you worked it out with God. Therapy was kind of like a stigma. Divorce was a stigma. So it's like I'm still getting some of my old uh, Wisconsin roots in me, but it's been great just to have everyone on and just hearing all these stories that I thought I was the only one experiencing. And it turns out that we're all in this together. We have very similar experiences, and it's been really truthfully healing from my end as well. Mm-hmm. And real quick, we need to give a shout out to the Korean adoptee podcast that came before us, the John Chi Show, and just people who have really been so supportive. It's been such a welcoming space to start a podcast. Everybody's been so kind and supportive. And I think it's great because we all have our own styles. We all have our own perspectives and lenses that we deliver material through. So it's just been really cool to be part of that community as well. Yes. And Kara, do you have anything or final thoughts you wanted to say? Yeah. I mean, I just have to pile on to the gratitude, you know, not to be cliche, but this is how we claim our power back. It really is. And, you know, I'm really encouraged by seeing Korean adoptee creators like you all and other people on YouTube and just out in the space, just representing on, on TV. We've got old boy out there on reality TV now. It is surreal to see myself, ourselves represented in places that we just never had space. And you guys are exactly right in the vulnerability and the courage that it takes to put yourself out there because that fear of no one showing up or no one following or no one subscribing can be the difference in people having a place to go and not. So I just thank you guys for stepping out there and putting, you know, your all selves out there on the limb because we are a part of the Korean experience on this earth and we have every right to be a part of that conversation. And I just want to like affirm that into every adoptee that hears that, that when you look at all the Korean people walking on this earth, a good portion of us are adoptees and we own a part of that experience as Korean people. And the more we share our stories and the more we get out there, the more we get to claim that part. So hopefully some of the explaining and some of the people pleasing and some of these things that we've had to grow up ingrained in us will start to soften and will start to trickle and the next generation of Korean adoptees will just be like every other group of kids. And that's something that I certainly wish was the sentiment when I was growing up where I just was like everybody else. So thank you guys for having me, for for putting yourselves out there for the long hours. Uh, I know editing and all that stuff is crazy. So just thank you guys so much. Thank you so much, Kara. And we are so grateful for your time and sharing your story. And I think you were the perfect guest for our final episode of season one of Soul Conversations. <laughs> Great job. No pressure. <laughs> Tell me that uh, after you do the editing. How about that? <laughs> oh, well, no, it'll, it'll be great. 
But we will be taking a little break while Shanae adjusts to motherhood. But don't worry, we will be back with a great lineup for season two soon. Thank you so much to all of our listeners and our supporters, and of course, our incredible guests, including Kira, whom you can follow on Instagram at KDLost. And we'll make sure to link that in the description so you can have the exact spelling. And while you're waiting for our return, as always, you can follow us at Soul Conversations or get in touch with us via our website at www.soulconversationspodcast.com. Thank you for tuning in this episode and this season, and we look forward to having you all back on season two. 